This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. Every day we're bringing you the latest news from the worlds of business and finance, plus technology, politics, so much going on in the world of politics, economics, and it's all harnessing the power of Business Week reporters and editors. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio. And be sure to watch us, too, on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News. Well, as we deal with this pandemic, there are so many things to talk about as it relates to the healthcare aspect of it. Lots of things are changing. We're not going into offices. We are telemedicine is taking a big uh, source of growth for the healthcare business. To chat about all of the changes, plus the virus, plus any potential vaccines, we are very pleased to welcome Dr. Caleb Alexander, Professor of Epidemiology from Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. He joins us on the phone from Charm City, Baltimore, Maryland. Dr. Alexander, thanks so much for joining us here. Let's just start with the latest on the numbers. Carol and I were just uh, talking about the, the really negative trends we're seeing coming out of Europe uh, and even in certain parts of the United States. What's your take on what we're seeing right now? Well, there's, thank you for having me, uh, Carol and Paul. It's a real privilege. And, and I should say that there is a lot of concern about the way the, the trends are going. And, you know, we've been talking uh, for some time about the potential for uh, a third wave, if you will, as uh, the weather cools, as people start, start spending more time in uh, as some of us are starting to feel a little bit more pandemic fatigue. And indeed, the numbers are are not looking good. In other words, we're seeing rising rates of infections in some parts of the country, uh, corresponding increases in in numbers of uh, hospitalizations or deaths. And it's, um, it's keeping a lot of people awake at night, I can tell you that. Well, and I do wonder, we didn't have the playbook, right, the first time around. We were all kind of learning as, as we go, and in many cases, scrambling just to keep up. I do wonder, uh, Dr. Alexander, what have we learned from the past six or seven months, certainly when it comes to treatment and certainly when it comes to keeping things under control or in check, if we can? Well, we know an enormous amount more about the, the virus itself. We understand a lot more about how it, how it does damage to the human body. And uh, we certainly have made headway in identifying uh, some potential treatments that, that do have an important role to play. So we do have a, 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 lot, of, a, a lot more options than we did in, in January or February. And I think we've also had plenty of time to understand how the virus is transmitted and what sort of public health measures can be used uh, to prevent such transmission. And and I suppose one of the most remarkable things is that despite the amount of time we've had and despite the amount that we know and despite the amount of scientific consensus about things such as mask wearing, uh, that we still have uh, uh, such uh, a debate about that and, and, and in some cases, um, lose sight of the science and lose sight of, of, of what we know about how this virus infects people and kills people. Can I just ask you, do you think that sending everybody back to school, kids back to school, has been a mistake? Well, I mean, it's taken place differently in parts of the country, and I think that that's what should be happening. In other mm-hmm. words, uh, you know, there's a lot of variation county to county, city to city, school district to school district in the uh, extent of community spread of the virus. And frankly, I think schools differ in how well equipped they are to manage that. So there are 
certainly some districts where uh, I don't think that it's a great idea for children to be in in classrooms face to face. And there are other districts that I think are, are managing it uh, with a large number of accommodations. And so it's 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 really an area where we can set consistent evidence based guidelines for how schools and school systems should manage this, but the application of those guidelines really has to be fit for purpose within individual communities. Doctor, on the vaccine front, what is your understanding of how this might play out? There are so many companies pursuing so many different vaccines and therapeutics for that matter. Um, And I'm sure the the folks at Johns Hopkins are right in the middle of all of that. How do you think this is going to play out over the next three, six months? Yeah, well, it's it's going to be a good problem to have if and when we have multiple vaccines on the market. And you're right that there are many, many in different stages of development, uh, several that are in late stage development. And, and the best estimates that I've heard, the most credible estimates are that by uh, late this year or early next year, we may have uh, one or more that have what's called emergency use authorization. That's a uh, Uh, a a designation by the Food and Drug Administration that's not, it falls short of full approval, but it allows for a product to be used on the market. And if and when that happens, you know, not everybody needs to be vaccinated uh, in one fell swoop. Uh, We won't have enough product to do so. And frankly, there are some people that are at much greater risk, either because of their occupations or because of their their comorbid conditions, the diseases they have, how old they are. So there are going to be different tiers of of people that really need it early and people that can wait and and, uh, don't have such a pressing need. But we really need to do everything we can to ensure that that the scientists and public health professionals are are to do their jobs. Right. And and we're fortunate to have... uh, uh, such a good drug administration, and they really need to be need to be uh, uh, regulating these products and governing their access to the market. So, Dr. Alexander, I do wonder, though, about the upcoming array of vaccines that we will get, and do we as patients, consumers, ultimately, will we be taking multiple vaccines, or are we going to, at some point, have some medical guidance that says, this is the kind of vaccine you should be taking versus somebody else takes a different vaccine? Help me understand this. Well, it's a great question, and if and when we get to a point where we have multiple vaccines that are on the market, and again, I I would say that that's going to be a good problem to have if that happens. Uh, it, it, they will no doubt have some differences. They may have differences in how effective they are. They may have slightly different side effect profiles. They may differ in terms of how well tolerated they are. And I think that it's, it's plausible when they first come out, we're not necessarily going to know if one vaccine is better than another uh, in a particular instance. But we certainly will, as, as time goes on, have information regarding the, the, the relative importance of, of the different vaccines. And rest assured, uh, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and, and other professional and, uh, uh, governmental organizations will be looking carefully to develop and disseminate guidance for people regarding uh, uh, which vaccine is right. 
Doctor, it's interesting, just as we were talking here, Sam Fazelli, who is our senior pharmaceutical and healthcare analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, he's based in London, he just uh, uh, messaged me and he said, if you have a vaccine with maybe 60% effectiveness and only 50% mm -hmm. of, of the people take it, is it even worth it to go down the vaccine route? Well, there's a huge push. I mean, it, it's, it's very, very, very important that when vaccines hit the market that they are uh, uh, that they're that they're used and and uh, rest assured there will be uh, a huge push to try to encourage people uh, to use them because we're not going to achieve what is called herd immunity in other words having enough people uh, vaccinated so that essentially society is protected and the COVID uh, virus doesn't transmit easily uh, within communities unless there's widespread vaccine adoption and so. You know, if there are multiple different products on the market, if there are multiple different vaccines, another benefit of that is that there's going to be uh, a demand that will far outstrip supply, even if there's some some subset of the population that, that doesn't want the vaccine for one reason or another. And by having multiple manufacturers that are producing the vaccines, we'll have a better chance of achieving that 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 target of, of what's called herd immunity in other words enough people getting vaccinated that the virus can no longer simply jump person to person within communities so okay and i have to say dr alexander i do think about is this our world now and we're going to have similar type viruses that are really tough uh, and very contagious and very lethal um, is this our future well, we're going to get through this. I mean, I the the you know I think the the general scientific consensus is that you know we're not going to be with this in February. So don't get your hopes up. Whether or not there is one or more vaccines on the market, and it may be that there's some uh, some lingering COVID years down the line, just as we have what's called seasonal influenza, mm -hmm. seasonal flu. But we will get through this. We, we will not, uh, uh, rest assured, in a, in a few years, we will not all be, uh, you know, wearing masks to the supermarket and conducting a, as much uh, engagement as we can by, by computer and telephone. So there's not going to be a COVID like 2022? That's a whole new variation? <laughs> no, no, I mean it seriously. Just get about 20 seconds. Yeah, well, I think, uh, you know, we look back, the last major pandemic worldwide was 1918, 1919. And I think the, the, the best estimates and expectations are that uh, within 12 to 18 months, that we'll be in a significantly better place than we are right now. All right. That's some optimism I can certainly use on this Thursday. So thank you so much. Dr. Caleb <laughs> Alexander, Professor of Epidemiology at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, joining us on the phone from Baltimore. And of course, uh, the Bloomberg School of Public Health, supported by Michael R. Bloomberg, founder of Bloomberg LP. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser from Bloomberg Radio. Well, Robinhood, Paul, definitely yep. one of the COVID economy's breakout successes, right? We've talked a lot about it. Um, it can take advantage, those who use it, of uh, volatility in the marketplace. It also can create volatility, yes. I think, in the marketplace. But uh, I feel like now it has to figure out what it wants to be. <laughs> when it when grows it, up. Yeah, when it grows <laughs> up. It is this week's cover story in the magazine. Let's get more from Bloomberg News investing reporter Annie Massa. She's on the phone in New York City. Also here, Bloomberg Business Week editor Joel Weber on the phone in Brooklyn. I mean, we know, Joel, the millennials, they're pretty addicted to this one. 
Yeah, and this has been, like you kind of hinted at there, it's been sort of one of the stories of the pandemic is just how day trading became the thing that has been captivating people on their phones for months now. And it, it's made people be doing things that are sometimes a little bit crazier than what they would have probably otherwise been doing simply because there's nothing else going on that looks like an entertainment in the same way. And so it's basically almost become, Robin Hood especially, has almost become sort of part of this like financial entertainment ecosystem <laughs> during the pandemic. And so we've been watching yeah. it um, along the way. And Annie uh, Maza has been breaking a ton of news. And we wanted to kind of put it all together and just say, like, look, this is a you know, Robin Hood is now officially a pandemic pastime. Um, but the question becomes, where do they go from here? I think what's the plan? Where, how do you take something that, you know, they popularize free trading, trading, fractional shares of ownership now. But where do you go from from there? And Annie, what did you find out as you tried to ask that question? Yeah, that was a major question we were trying to figure out because Robin Hood has proved so amazing at just getting people onto its platform. Like it spread like wildfire, um, signing up 3 million users in the first four months of the year alone. And so we were kind of asking, um, what's the next act for Robinhood? And when you look at it, the way that they're pitching themselves to these investors, they say, okay, we get these first time traders in the door. And then the next step for us is to have them grow with us into all kinds of other products that Robinhood doesn't offer yet, but things like one day they'll want us for mortgage lending or car and rental insurance or life insurance even. So they have much bigger, a much bigger vision for what they want all these customers to do on their platform. That's not just trading. But the catch is um, if you're going to offer things like insurance and you know retirement accounts to people, you really need their trust, and that's a place where they've struggled. So, Annie, talk to us about the typical Robinhood um, trader or account user. What's the profile? I think that there is kind of a stock image in everyone's mind of the typical Robinhood trader. I mean, 80% of their assets under management do come from millennial users, so it's absolutely a millennial product. But Gen Z is in the mix as well. And I think, um, you know, the, the typical image that you might get in your head of a Robinhood user is, maybe a college age or, um, you know, kind of 20-something uh, trader, a, a lot of men. But it's, that's not the only profile. We, we spoke to all kinds of people who use this app, um, including people who don't use it just for day trading, um, who are trying to invest a little bit more long-term. And so it varies, but that millennial group is core for them. And Annie, um, you mentioned some struggles. Let's talk about uh, sort of the 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 pieces of the puzzle that um, Robinhood users have encountered <laughs> and, you know, some of them have become uh, frustrated about. What, what are some of those main gripes? Absolutely. Well, one of the more recent issues was um, around 2,000 accounts um, were compromised, in, um, w which they found in an internal review, and that's um, news we broke a couple weeks ago. And the main frustration, I think, around this issue and others that have come up with Robinhood um, over this year is they don't have a customer service phone number and a frustration. That's Wait, what? Again again. It's like you just stop right there. It's like, what? Yeah. That's right. So, And I mean, it's really like it's very Silicon Valley, actually, like a, yeah. a lot of companies that we use all the time, a lot of tech companies 
don't have a real customer service number. But this isn't really like this isn't like questions. Uber, you know, I didn't get my car. It's like I have a question about my investments. Exactly. And like <laughs> if you're worried that your account was hacked or if there's an outage, like they had a major day-long outage way at the beginning of, um, you know, right before pan- the pandemic lockdown started on March 2nd that lasted all day. So if you're sitting there with your phone, like, know, either the app is totally down or I'm seeing, you know, funds disappear from my account because I'm worried it was hacked. Like, there's no one to call and that does freak people out. So it's this question of like, can we move into a world where people are okay with that? Annie, I'm just wondering what the competitors are thinking here. I'm thinking E-Trade, Charles Schwab, TD Ameritrade. Are they saying we need to adapt a little bit because these Robinhood folks have tapped into something? It's a great question, and, and I think they have. I mean, one thing, Robinhood was really an early mover into free commission trading. And at the time, I think it was kind of a wacky idea. And now that's the industry standard. I mean, around this time last year, Charles Schwab moved to zero commissions, and all of the other major brokerages did the same. And now, you know, zero commission trading is the industry standard. So, I mean, that's one way. They um, they offer fractional shares. That's something which is the ability to buy just a piece of a stock instead of the whole thing. Um, So, for example, like buying just a $5 um, slice of Amazon or another big tech stock. Um, And that's something that, you know, Fidelity and Schwab have now. So Robinhood has in some ways bent the industry to its image. It's true. So, Annie, what what are the likelihoods that a company like Robinhood might go public? So, in reporting this story, we did hear that it's possible that this wild year that they've had could pull uh, the prospects of an IPO public. And without commenting on the exact timeline, um, co-founder Vlad Tenev did say that they see themselves as a large independent public company in the future. And so, you know, especially if you're so capital markets focused with your customers, you can imagine that they might want to harness some of that um, and and some of the real like lightning in a bottle that they've captured this year right. by, by trying to work towards an IPO, though we don't have an exact date yet. Well, we're all watching. And I have to say, Paul and I caught up with uh, one of the co-founders of Wealthfront, yep. Andy Ratcliffe, uh, over the last week or so. And he had some thoughts, certainly, on Robinhood. Uh, right? You know, Paul, one of the kind of early financial disruptors. Right. Exactly right. And, that, you know, this is uh, – the question is, is this a trend? Or when we come out of the pandemic, are people going to kind of back away from right. this? And do you have to be more and offer more services? I yeah. have to say one internally, uh, one internal message I'm getting from one of our Bloomberg colleagues who said basically, you know, the customer service or lack thereof is one reason that they switch back to a major brokerage because yep. they just yep. were uncomfortable with it. <laughs> All right, Annie Massa, thank you so much. Bloomberg News investing reporter uh, and along with, of course, Bloomberg Business Week editor Joel Weber. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser from Bloomberg Radio. So it is 11 days, 9 hours, 57 minutes and 54 seconds until the November election. Uh, I know a lot of people have already voted. I know, I have this great clock. I know everybody says 12 days. No, that's when election day will be over. We may know an outcome. (laughs) But 11 days until we all start voting. Um, Tonight, of course, the final presidential debate. A lot going on politically today. Bloomberg contributor Rick Davis is back. Former Republican strategist, former manager of Senator John McCain's presidential campaign, partner at Stone Court Capital. He's back with us on the phone from Virginia. Rick, so great to have you here with us. I don't even know where to start. So (laughs) let's start with the debate. I cannot wait to watch. 
What are you expecting? Uh, will it be vastly different? I mean, certainly the topics are supposed to be different, but do you think it's going to be very different this time around? Well, you know, the, the, the difference may be in the debate commission. They've said they're going to uh, control microphones, uh, mm-hmm. at least in the initial question and answer period, which is at the top of each section, 10-minute uh, sections, two minutes each the, the, to answer a question. The, the commission will control the mic so that Trump can't talk over Joe Biden and vice versa. But then it's opened up. And so I do expect it to be combative. Uh, the Trump campaign has made it totally clear that uh, Donald Trump's going to go after Joe Biden on his corrupt family and dealings that his son had in China and Ukraine. So I would expect uh, sparks to fly. Uh, it'll be interesting to see how Joe Biden reacts to that aggressive approach that uh, Donald Trump seems to like. And, uh, and, and, and I think that this is the last chance to make a real material change uh, for the campaigns in the election uh, we'll then have to worry for the next 11 days what kind of events will occur around the world that could affect the election. But, but tonight's the big night for the campaigns to make their point. I just want to follow it. You know, I think Americans like fighters, and I don't know that. Do you think that it hurt Biden when he said, you know, shut up, come on, man, or whatever, you know? <laughs> uh, or did people feel like, yeah, I felt the same way, and I would have done the same thing? So I do wonder what's the balance that Biden has to have tonight. Yeah, there's no question that uh, it's kind of hard to tell out of that first debate whether people reacted to Trump's overbearing and, you know, interruptions and and domination of the dialogue or whether they reacted positively to Joe Biden's, um, you know, sort of pushing him back. Uh, But it was a good week for Joe Biden. I mean, he clearly Mm -hmm. advanced in some of those polls in the battleground states after that debate. Uh, it was also the time when Donald Trump came down with coronavirus, so that was a bit of a distraction from all those things. Um, and and yet the campaign has sort of settled back to where it was before the last debate, uh, polling-wise. And so uh, I would imagine that the Biden people were happy with the outcome of the first debate and would love to replicate that. Mm-hmm. So, Rick, I'll, I'll be honest. I'll be switching back and forth between the debate and the Giants-Eagles game, but I think uh, there'll probably be Not more action. Series. Oh, I guess we have a <laughs> night off tonight, right. <laughs> yeah, there might be more action with the uh, debate. Is there – you know, this president has been reported again that he is not – necessarily taking the time to prepare uh, for this debate. Uh, I guess we're you know, going to rely on his gut. Um, is there anything that you would advise this president to do in tonight's debate? Look, I think that he did uh, uh, turn off voters in his last debate because of his tone, overly aggressive uh, in his approach, uh, overbearing. Uh, and so I don't think he has to change too much about um, what he says. I think he has to change the way he says it. Uh, tone and demeanor are really important. I mean, this is part of what people have to live through for the next four years. And there is, in the polling data, a a pretty good amount of Trump fatigue uh, that's Mm. out there with voters. I mean, he's just in your mouth, 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 24 (laughs) hours a day, seven days a week. You wake up in the morning with 40 Twitters and you go to sleep, you know, with him at a rally screaming his head off. So, like, if he wants to get reelected, I think if he just dialed it back, people would say, wow, that's the Trump we want. So conversely, Rick, I mean, the, the, the pandemic numbers are starting to go in the wrong direction again. How should uh, former Vice President Biden portray that and the U.S. response or lack thereof from a federal response tonight? What's the best course of action as it relates to the pandemic for Mr. Biden? 
Well, you know, the pandemic played a pretty big role in the first debate, and and I think this is where the Biden people feel they really made up ground. Uh, Not only did they attack the administration's lackluster approach to it, but they offered a very specific plan for the future, a plan which in subsequent interviews Donald Trump says is basically something he agrees to. Um, he hasn't implemented it, but um, but he, he doesn't disagree with the Biden plan. And so I think that they want this uh, election to turn on who is the future administration best able to navigate the United States and, frankly, help the world uh, uh, get through the uh, coronavirus and a subsequent economic downturn. Uh, and I think that will be as much of the debate as he can possibly push uh, his plan uh, for for coronavirus. What do you make of the president releasing the 60 Minutes interview or a big chunk of it? I have to say I'm a little obsessed. I've been trying to squeeze in watching it in between prepping for the show and stuff. Um, He's pretty agitated, it feels like, from the get-go before they even started talking. Um, How does that impact anything or what's the strategy here, Rick? And would you have – if you were advising him, would you have said, yep, release it? Yeah, I think he's – I think he's trying to basically – uh, bait the refs. You know, it's uh, uh, you go after the referee before the game starts because you want them to feel good for the home team. You know, and and uh, and I think uh, this is sort of a message to the debate moderator, Kristen Welker, tonight. He's been all over attacking her as being biased. Uh, I think he, he's he's always made a pretty good diet of attacking the media uh, and and looking for uh, I would think uh, some kind of. Um, um, better deal out of them by by pushing back hard on them and and mm. and by the way i I think this worked relatively well in his administration. I think there is a little bit of uh, uh, president's ability to cow the media by being so aggressive at them, and this is just another example of of how he 's done that. Um, he is setting up a lot of alternatives on election day, and he needs the media to be compliant with some of his I think more outrageous options, and yeah. uh, and I think this is all a plan to get that ready for that. Rick, if you believe the polls, and I know a lot of people necessarily don't believe the polls, President Trump is behind Joe Biden. What would you advise him to do over the next eleven days to try to rally? He's got to do is pick his shots. Uh, there are arguably a dozen states that are in play, uh, states that are within the margin of error in the polling, states that are critical electoral college states that Donald Trump would need to be able to put together a, uh, a strategy around getting 270 electoral votes. And he's just got to pick his shots. He's, he's not only behind in polling, he's behind in money. Uh, and uh, arguably, 44 million people have already voted, so he's, he's probably behind in votes already. And so he's just got to narrow his campaign aperture down to something that he's just got to be convinced that if he can win in these four or five states, Florida, Arizona, Pennsylvania, you know, maybe Michigan, Wisconsin, um, then, then he's got his whole campaign riding on that. Uh, right now he's still running what I would call a national campaign uh, where they're spending a lot of time in a lot of states that arguably aren't going to matter uh, if, uh, if, if, if he's not going to pick a few states to win. So what does Joe Biden need to do to win? Well, I think Joe Biden's got tons of options, right? I mean, he, he's, he's, he's got more money, so he can spread the board a little bit. Uh, he can look for opportunities in states like Arizona that have voted Republican uh, in presidential campaigns since Bill Clinton won in, uh, his, second re- in his re-election, and, um, and, and try to force 
the the Trump campaign to spread thinner than they are able to, and uh, and so uh, he has he has the advantage uh, of if the election were held today, he he'd he'd probably win in most of these states. That being said, uh, the next. Uh, 11 days are critical. Uh, there's no question that the uh, 2016 race uh, was able to swing around where uh, Hillary Clinton was ahead of Donald Trump at this point in the race, albeit less than Joe Biden's doing right now, mm. and, uh, and and wound up losing. So there's still time for this cha- this race to change dynamics. And, and yet I would say tonight, Joe Biden does a good job in the debate tonight. He will have crossed an important bridge to, to winning. Is it still really close <laughs> well when you look it, it first of all it's not a national election so forget all these polls that show right. nationally right. joe biden win by 10 points right i mean we don't we don't vote nationally uh hillary clinton won the popular vote by three million and lost uh so so take that off the boards when you look at states like florida dead heat uh north carolina dead heat uh, ohio dead heat arizona dead heat i mean these are really important states for electoral votes uh, uh, whoever wins Florida and Arizona is going to be the next president. And, and those states are within uh, the margin of error in most public polls. And, 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 and when you talk to the Biden campaign, they say they're winning those states. And when you talk to the Trump campaign, they say they're winning those states. So if, if, if Trump wanted to consolidate his entire campaign into Florida and Arizona, he'd probably be smart to do it. Hmm. Hey, Rick, let's just assume that Biden wins. Republican strategists, they go back and they think about what are we going to do with our party going forward? And my question to you is, what happened to the Republican Party, the party of Reagan, Bush, Dole, McCain? And does the Republican Party want to get back there? Yeah, well, um, that's about leadership. Uh, the Republican Party is a very hierarchical party, right? We, we are all about our leadership. And, and when you're president, you are indisputably the leader of the Republican Party. Uh, the Democratic Party is much more of a bottom-up party, right? And, and power is much more emanated from the bottom that, that, that goes to the leaders at, at a local level. Um, the Republican Party, we like the top of the ticket. And, and so uh, I would say one thing that people, uh, regardless of what happens in this election, need to remember, and, and that is that four years from now, it's very likely uh, that you could have two women running for president, which would be historic, Kamala Harris and Nikki Haley. And I like our prospects for the Republican Party if that's the contest four years from now. So you can see how quickly things can change uh, as to who represents the party of Lincoln and Reagan and John McCain. Um, uh, you could change that overnight with a nomination of someone like Nikki Haley. Rick, I would just say, though, for, as a woman, it's taken a long time to finally see something, you know, actually female candidates, you know, potentially running for president. So it, it, it feels like, even though things can change quickly, it feels like it's uh, been a long time coming. Um, well, it, it may be the best possible option for electing a woman is to have yeah. both parties nominate one. <laughs> I love the idea. I love it. Yep. Um, Bloomberg contributor Rick Davis, always love uh, talking yep. with you. Thank you so much. Great insight. Former Republican strategist, former manager of Senator John McCain's presidential campaign partner at Stone Court Capital, on the phone from Virginia. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no. No, no, no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. 
It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That punk music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. And just got about 11 minutes left in today's trading session. We're pretty much hovering uh, near some of our best levels of the session. Charlie, of course, breaking down those numbers. It is time for the drive to the close. Delighted to have back with us one of our favorite voices when it comes to markets and when it comes to talking Tesla. We do it a lot with him. Ross Gerber is back, president and CEO of Gerber Kawasaki Wealth and Investment Management. He is with us on the phone from Santa Monica, California. So, Ross, good to have you here with Paul and myself. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Doing well, doing well. Uh, you know, just uh, watching the markets, watching, waiting for the election outcome, and watching Tesla yeah. just continue to go higher and higher and higher. Yeah, it's great, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> oh, we should be, full disclosure, Ross owns shares of Tesla. He has yeah. a Model 3. He knows this And a Model really. Y. And a and Model, Model Y. Okay. Ah. That's my wife's. It's my wife. You're uh, all in. So what'd you make of the quarter last night, Ross? You know, it's great. I, I'm really stoked. Like, they finally have, you know, gotten out of that stage of, like, being kind of shakily profitable and sort of, like, you know, sort of, like, barely getting there to just blowing it out. And and now, with $14 billion in cash on the books, they, they're just fully, you know, they have full liquidity to achieve their dreams of building all these gigafactories all over the world and, and increasing production by several orders of magnitude. So I'm, I'm very, very excited because, boy, the last couple of years have been tough for Tesla to get to this stage, and now we're getting to the fun part. So it makes me wonder, where, where are all the other automakers? They're watching <laughs> Tesla, and I feel like they're just letting Tesla really kind of own this market. Yeah, they are. And, and I would say the same thing about, you know, the mall owners or whatever. It's like, the, the auto industry in the United States is about to get devastated because they simply have failed to understand that the technological shifts that are happening that are going to affect them is something they need to go all in on versus these sort of tiptoeing into the market with products that just ultimately sell more ICE vehicles for them, that higher margin. So they're giving up the future to make something today, and, and that's going to be a huge mistake longer term for, for the big automakers. Mm. What do you make of uh, General Motors coming out with an $80,000 electric pickup truck? That seems like a compelling product. Maybe not the price tag, but the product. No, I mean, it's not compelling at all. I don't know anybody in the pickup side of the world that wants to spend a hundred grand on a truck. I, I think that's exactly the point I'm trying to make is, first of all, they haven't come out with anything. They showed us a video of a truck. Now, the last video of a truck I saw was from Nikola, and they pushed the truck down the hill. So, you know, when, G, when GM actually shows me a real truck, then we'll talk. But I've been in more EV factories than I care to talk about. And this is a really hard thing to build. So just saying we're going to build these trucks, mm. that doesn't mean anything. You prove to me you're going to build a truck, and I'll see the truck, then we'll talk. But the second thing is, how are they going to sell a truck for 120000 when I can buy an amazing GM truck for 50000 or 60000 So it's like, who's going to do that? You know. So I, I, until these companies go all in, and I've said this many times, you have companies like Rivian and Lucid, which are pure EV companies with good financial backing that are, are all in EV companies, and these are the companies that are going to be successful longer term, but Detroit, they seem to just you know put their head in the sand, keep selling, keep doing what they're doing, and hope that Tesla goes away. Uh, it's not going to happen. 
Ross, that's what I wanted to ask you. Like you said, you're in and out of EV plants. You're checking out, you know, this industry, you know, to understand it much more broadly. I mean, who are the other folks beyond Tesla? We know you like Tesla, you know, that you're keeping a close watch on. Okay, so here's what I've learned recently at Tesla. I was at Autonomy Day. I am mm-hmm. one of the few, probably one of 30 people that have walked through this new cell factory where they are making new batteries with new technology that is nothing like the old. And one of the things that came to my attention in this was the fact that even if Tesla is successful with everything they do, it's barely a dent in the fight for climate. There's so much demand for EVs, and there's so much opportunity in EVs, yet you know, only a few people are playing it. So the way we see it is there's huge opportunity in cell manufacturers and the entire supply chain of the EV ecosystem. And that's where we're now investing a lot of money is into the EV supply chains, um, battery suppliers, cell producers. This is the future. And it's like going back to 1971 and Intel created a computer chip. Intel wasn't the only computer chip maker that was successful, but they were the leader. So what we're looking for are what are the other companies that are going to be successful in in helping supply other companies with EV uh, technology, as well as building that, you know, vertical integration to supply an industry that's hopefully will be selling, you know, 50 to 100 million cars one day in a decade or so, you know, there's huge opportunity. I'm on the edge of my seat. Do you feel like uh, tipping your hat as to a couple of names that you're looking at or maybe investing in? Um, well, we are investing in the way I'm doing it is through an ETF right now because okay. it's very hard to buy Korean stocks. It turns out that U.S. Uh, investors can't easily buy Korean stocks, even institutions like myself. So we are buying a, an ETF in the symbol LIT, and this is uh, a, a global X security that focuses on battery technology. And the top 10 holdings of this are exactly what you want to own. It's like every battery maker and supplier in Japan, Korea, and China. And, and that's where this technology is going to be developed and where it's going to be deployed and where there's a huge opportunity. And so that's, that's the, I think, the simplest way to play it mm-hmm. and a way where you can get exposure to many of the different players. And that's what we've been doing. Hey, Ross, uh, does the electric vehicle industry, do, from your perspective, have a, a view on you know, Trump versus Biden? We're going to have an election here. Well, yes, because obviously a guy who's pushing coal and doesn't get it isn't as good as a guy who totally gets it, who wants to see the world not explode into a fireball. So, you know, Biden's going to spend a ton of money on green energy any way you look at it. And we're seeing it in our solar positions. You know, we're very involved with green energy as a whole. And that's mostly because I see as as having no choice. So even if Trump wins, we still have no choice. I mean, the fires and the hurricanes aren't going away. But I think Biden, so we're actually betting on a Biden victory right now. Um, and, and we expect our clean energy positions to go, they've already mm-hmm. gone up a ton in anticipation of this. And, and I expect this trend to continue, though. Once again, these are long-term trends. Right. We don't invest around elections or presidents because I'm thinking five, ten years, it's going to be another president after Biden, too. You know. Always so good to check in with you. Stay safe, Ross Gerber. Thank you so much. Ross Gerber, President CEO of Gerber Kawasaki Wealth and Investment Management, on the phone. Thanks so much for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Download the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or at Bloomberg.com. And be sure to check out our daily radio show at 2 p.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio. And be sure to watch us, too, on YouTube by searching Bloomberg Global News.